what is interesting is your point about nine and seven Super Bowl teams. Like, I think we're conditioned to whatever we're conditioned to. Like, so me, I'm, I'm a big NFL fan and I just feel like I'm so used to it that I don't think twice of, Ooh, the giants are in there now and you know, or whatever you just like the week to week doesn't matter. I mean, we've, and I've done this certainly a lot of people in college football have argued we have the best regular season in sports because every game matters. Well, you know, like if you lose to Illinois and they're, you know, they're a two and seven team and you're still in the playoff, does every game matter? I mean, I guess it kind of does, but it really doesn't, you know, so not in the same way it used to. And I think that's just, you know, fans will adjust because we have no choice. You know, that's, that's the reality. That was Bruce Feldman, who's going to join us talking about the latest development news of an expanded college football playoff. I'm going to talk a little bit about what we've seen the first round or so, Jokic's MVP and James Posey on his championships with Miami, Boston, and as a coach with Cleveland. It's all coming up next. It's the Ryan Russillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA final starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older. 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler or visit rg help.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip from free high speed Wi Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more. Book direct at lq.com. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. I have a bunch of NBA stuff that I want to get to, and I'm actually so pissed off about this Garrett Cole story, not because of what he did, but again, the reaction to it, that if I start there, I'm going to get completely derailed and not get to anything. So the Suns blow out the Nuggets last night. This is not entirely surprising. Uh, Portland didn't beat good teams. Portland couldn't really defend better teams. And, you know, that series still could have gone Portland's way. And I think there are certain examples where it's glaring the difference between regular season and postseason for some of these teams. And looking at Phoenix, um, they're terrific. I mean, they're they're so locked in. And the only way I wasn't picking them to win the West was because of the Lakers. And I like Phoenix against Utah. You know, we'll get to the Clippers and and Jazz for a little bit here. I don't know how much I'm going to do on all four series. But there's this locked-in thing with Phoenix uh, that is very real. And it's incredible because Booker hasn't really had to go off. Paul's closed these fourth quarters. They didn't need him in the fourth quarter last night. But what he did in the third quarter last night, what he did in the fourth quarter in game one, defensively, they've been terrific. Um, the Aiton story has been a major success. And I'm telling you, midway through the season, if you were watching them all season, there was moments where, you know, it looked like, I didn't even know if Monty trusted them all the time. I'm pretty sure Chris Paul didn't. And look, you guys can say whatever you want about um, my opinion of Aiton, um, because this happens a lot with players. It's like, okay, this is how I feel about a certain guy. And then the player gets better and it's like, see, and you're like, yeah, but that's not what he was doing. I was listening to Eddie Johnson, who is with the team all the time. And he was talking about like Aiton doing just a better job and working with the coaching staff. 
And he is great against Denver. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this stuff that's out there, but it's kind of like something that we're learning about again is that Jokic through the regular season was really complimentary in a way that, you know, sometimes you're not expecting an MVP type of guy. We'll get to Jokic winning the MVP here. Um, But Jokic said this after a regular season game. This is back in, I think, January. It was that overtime game. He said, quote, he's amazing. He's amazing. Uh, Give the guy credit. He's really solid. He knows like what he needs. I think that's the best thing a young player can have. And the mindset, he plays really good defense. He stopped me five, six, seven, eight times. Give that guy credit. He was really good tonight. So if you look at Aiton's numbers in the regular season, the best team he he scored against was Denver. He averaged 22 and 12 on 70% shooting. Yeah, two-game deal. But you can see there's something about him that makes Jokic work a little bit more. And let's face it, for all the love, and I don't think there's any of us watching Jokic going, although, you know what, if they get blasted out of this series, I kind of can't wait for the retroactive, like, yeah, he wasn't really the MVP, which, you know, people can't. It's like the Heisman deal. They'd be like, you know, all those other games that we watched all year long that counted, especially a guy like Jokic who didn't miss any, and all the other guys, like, missed a lot of games, and he was awesome. Yeah, that's that's what we vote on, actually. We don't. We don't vote on, like, was your team hurt and not as good as the other team in the playoffs? That's not what we should be doing. But Aiton's numbers, those are the best numbers he had against any real team. And I say real team because against Houston, he went for 24-12 on 71% shooting in three games. But Houston was a fake team this year, and I think Rockets fans would even admit that. So the Aiton thing is is unbelievable. The defensive rotations that they have, and, you know, they've tried to – anyone will tell you, like, you've got to figure out a way to play Jokic straight up. He needs to do a better job. We all need to do a better job. But his nickname's a hard J and his real name's a soft J. And it, I catch myself constantly with it. So I apologize. I, I'm trying. I'm trying. And you know what? Take it easy on yourself, too, for those of you out there that screw that one up. But it's just tough when you have a guy whose last name is a completely different pronunciation from his nickname. Although Big Honey, if we could just all get on board with Big Honey... I'm fine with that, too, but apparently he doesn't really like that. So, Aiton, terrific. And Bridges, that's the other part of this team where I just love that there's moments where Bridges can kind of carry him a bit offensively. His body control in transition, and I'm telling you, there are times when I've watched Bridges, and he had a miss last night, but I still was impressed with the miss because I couldn't believe where he started the attempt from in transition. He was trying to get a layup. There's layups where I think, ah, he's not going to get there, and he gets there. There's threes where I think his setup for a shot takes a little too long, and he just, it doesn't matter. Like, he'll let you contest into him, and he still gets the shot off. And so you haven't even needed some crazy game from Booker. Um, I'll also throw this out there because I just have to mention my guy. I've been keeping track of the Lou Dort Awards, and Lou Dort at one point in the playoffs, and this is nothing against Lou Dort. I like Lou Dort. And he shot it better this year, too. So, you know, Oklahoma City's got something in Lou Dort. But Lou Dort, there was a graphic because of all the threes he was taking in that Houston first-round series, because that was basically what Houston was doing, was like, let Lou Dort go crazy. Where I think it was like, this many threes attempted this many points on, on this percentage shooting. So they're all positives. And I think the graphic was Jordan, Kobe, and Lou Dort. And you go, all right. Something seems a little off on that one because DeAndre Ayton has one right now that you wouldn't expect here after this is after game one. So now it doesn't count. But DeAndre Ayton, this is this is what we had him qualifying for 20 points, 10 rebounds shooting. Right. So Ayton had four games in which he recorded 20 and 10 on 65 percent shooting in the playoffs. The older the only other NBA player 
in playoff history to record uh, four such games in a seven-game span, so six against the Lakers, game one against Denver, is Kareem in 1974. I've just praised Aiton for about two minutes here. That seems a little Lou Dordish. So I'd like to keep track of the Lou Dort awards. Anything that jumps out at you where you're like, wait, what? I mean, Donovan Mitchell is not Lou Dort, but Donovan Mitchell already has surpassed Carl um, Malone in 40-point games. So that was like, wait, what's going on? But Chris Paul now is the first player with 15 points, 15 assists, zero turnovers in a playoff game since Chris Paul in 2014. And that was the first time a player had done it since Chris Paul in 2008. So... um it's getting a little misty over here. I'm just saying. All right, so that's where we're at with this series. And Denver, by the way, throughout most of this run, they've never really been able to defend. And by the another thing, as I keep adding on, the Michael Porter Jr. back injury, he's running around in a heating pad the whole time before the game, and then he shoots like it. And their final three-point shooting numbers weren't terrible, but they were to start the game. I mean, they were, they were what do I have here? 2-18 to start. Because they ended with some decent numbers, but that's not really what was going on with them. They couldn't shoot it if Porter can't get it going. I would love to know because apparently Aaron Gordon and Jamichael Green ripped into the team after game one. What's an Aaron Gordon pep talk like? Like you guys, you guys don't know what winning's about. Like how does Aaron Gordon, who's been there a few months, who, you know, is a nice player. Everybody would like Aaron Gordon, but he doesn't change the course of who you are as a franchise. I mean, Denver needed him, and he had some moments against Portland. Um, but offensively, I think Nuggets fans are probably like, wait, is this it? Is this it offensively? Be honest, Nuggets fans. Like, that's happened to you. You're like, huh? So this guy's like, everybody wanted to trade for him? How does he, re- like, hey, man, when we beat Portland, or when we beat Toronto in game one and no one believed in us and DJ Augustine was like, be ready, you know, we set a tone for that series. We lost the next four, but, you know, it's, uh, I just can't imagine Aaron Gordon ripping into a Nuggets team where most of those guys were in the conference finals last year, and it's Aaron Gordon. Again, no offense. Real quick on the Sixers. They figured out a couple things, uh, certainly in the second matchup, and the piece that Kevin O'Connor, the ringer, you should check him out. Uh, We've had him on the pod a bunch of times. He had a good thing from Second Spectrum where they looked at the defensive alignment because Danny Green was responsible for getting torched for the majority of Trey Young's points, especially in the first half. And you could see clearly in Game 2 the adjustment. Game 1, Danny Green, 49 plays. Thibel, 14 plays. Simmons, 8 plays defensively. The only reason Simmons didn't have more defensive plays against Trey Young is because of those two bullshit foul calls to start the second half. Uh, Game 2, Simmons, 31 plays. Thibel, 29 plays. Green, 2 plays. So, there we go. Uh, I'm really, really impressed with Atlanta, though. So, I'm not ready to completely write this series off. I do think Philadelphia is the better team. Hunter's going to be out now, but you know he wasn't really part of the mix with the limit on his minutes to begin with. But I can't wait to see what happens in game three. Like that's just how impressed I am with Atlanta. But I was I was actually like surprised because defensive stuff, I think coaches will go in and they can be really stubborn. And it's very easy for us to be at home. And that's why we really, you know, hammer on substitutions or if a guy has too many fouls, like Aiton had two fouls right away last night, and you're like, oh, what's gonna happen here? Monty Williams leaves him in. Guess what happens? If you get in a third foul, everybody who does what I do would be like, oh, because you're an idiot. Because it's easy for us to identify those mistakes or something that results in a mistake and hurts your chances to win. So then we just hammer on everybody all the time. Same as timeouts, same as substitutions and all that kind of different stuff. 
But it, when it's really glaring and it's a defensive matchup, like Danny Green trying to contain Trey Young, it, you're like, why are why are you doing this? And I really thought, you know, they're going to try to change it in that second half. And I thought those two calls um, with Trey Young sticking out his arm like that, as great as he is and everything else, you know, look, we've been over this. Um, that that changes what you can kind of do there defensively. So it also makes me wonder what's going to happen in game two for the Clippers and the Jazz because they went Luke Kennard hunting there late. And Donovan Mitchell, uh, with his ridiculous outbursts, and let's not forget, I mean, we're a year removed from he and Jamal Murray having one of the all-time great offensive showdowns, and that's without Conley. That game was ugly early. Jazz get out to a 10-2 run. They missed 21 straight shots, and the Clippers still lose that game. And they're losing it because Paul George. Like, Mitchell's a guy that gives you a chance. Like, if you don't have one of those, you know, Mitchell, this is a great question, and I'm going to ask Rudy this after the break, but, like, who would you rather have, Westbrook or Paul George? Because there's a Westbrook part of it where you go, at least the guy thinks he's awesome. And then you're like, yeah, but is that to the detriment of the team, which I would argue. But then you've got the Paul George side of the spectrum where you go, does he know that he's awesome? Because, man, like if you look at his efficiency stuff and, you know, again, there's none of this stuff is perfect on the stats, but it's a pretty good indicator. Like if you look at PER, if you're a wing player and you're over 15, you know, that's that's good. If you're really good, you should be at 20. And Paul George for five of the last six years of his career, despite one of the years in Oklahoma City, I think it was the second year, um, he was be- he was over 20. So when you're over 20 in PER, it's usually not a mistake, all right? Unless it's Hassan Whiteside. Like we said, with big guys, it's, it's a joke, and those numbers get really weird sometimes. But with George, you know, he's had playoff seasons. His PER is 14.6, 18.8, 14.7, 17.9. If you have two under five or under 15, like below 15 is a below average player. And the defensive plus minus on the, some of the box score, if you buy into that, again, I, I like it at the extremes in the middle. It can get a little muddy, but he, he's just across the board worse on those numbers. So, you know, the Clippers are supposed to have two of those guys. And right now they have one and Mitchell is, is good enough or at least good enough to equal that. So that's kind of like off the Danny Green thing. Where we're watching it going, why do they keep running this drag screen left to right and Danny Green just getting torched on it every time? And now you leave Embiid in the middle. So now you're kind of taking him out of the game defensively. Why are you going to let that happen for entire straight first half? I wonder what we'll see with Ty Lue's adjustment with Luke Kennard um, getting caught in those screens. I mean, just a screen right side. Mitchell brings it over. And then they tried to double him, and he was splitting those. There was another one that was the biggest play, I thought, where Kennard was on him in the switch, and Kawhi's like, all right, screw this, I'm bringing the double. And Mitchell saw it, and Kawhi got there late, and then Monty Morris stays, excuse me, um, Marcus Morris, stays glued to Gobert and doesn't bring the help, and it's a layup, and it's over. So, you know, we'll look for that to close the game if the Jazz are Kennard hunting again which I think they would, which is pretty amazing if you think about Canard and the French translation. But a um, little, little culture for you. Um, we'll see. We'll see if Ty leaves him in there. Okay, final thought here on, on Joker winning the MVP. We have a run uh, that is unprecedented. The developmental side of this league with its stars. Uh, the stars have for decades been the guys, okay? <laughs> like, if you look at the best players and you look at the MVPs, whether it's Akeem, whether it's Duncan, it's David Robinson, certainly Jordan, Bird, Magic, um, Shaq, 
You know, Kobe was a little different situation, but he only had one. LeBron winning a ton of them. You know, most of the people winning the MVPs, you can say the player got better. And the joke about the last dance, and it was awesome, but it also could have been called, you know, a few guys got taller. Uh, the run that we've had between Kawhi in moments winning a finals MVP and looking like the best player on the floor in a Spurs Miami series and then Toronto and Golden State, and he doesn't have the straight MVP, but like, yeah, we we flirted with the idea where it's not insane to say Kawhi's the best player in the world. Um, he's not right now. I think it's Durant. And I don't even know what to say about the Nets. The fact that they're doing this without Harden is is absolutely horrifying. I mean, are they not even going to need him? <laughs> that seems crazy to me. Although I know what I'm going to do. I'm just keep picking Phoenix every single time. Uh, and maybe you shouldn't listen to me. But Jokic wins, and we had told you this, you know, a month or so ago. Is he the most unlikely superstar in NBA history? I believe that he is. He's really the only second round pick, the real first, second round pick to win an MVP in the modern era. If you look at the highest picks or the number of MVPs per pick, the lowest pick is the way I should actually phrase that is 15, right? 15 is the lowest draft slot that we've seen someone win the MVP from 16 down to 41 or 16 down to four. It's no one. And then it's Jokic. So between Kawhi, Giannis back-to-back MVPs in that 15 slot, and now Jokic, I don't know what it means. I don't know what it means. I don't know if development has changed. I don't know if that means you're supposed to go ahead and take slow guys now from Serbia. I don't know if that means you're supposed to take six, nine guys that are going to grow to maybe seven feet that are from Greece and you don't really know what to do with them. I mean, look, Giannis in the beginning of his NBA career, I wasn't sure. Kawhi was still somewhat limited. I mean, you can even throw Jimmy Butler into the mix from last year, but we've had a a run of the last few years where it is absolutely unprecedented the amount of people that have been developmental success stories to be the best players in this game. And that's not, that's just not how this draft has ever worked. And I don't know that it means, you know, I'll say very often when something happens, it doesn't always mean that it's something. And I'm just not sure what that something is right now. All right. I want to talk with Surdy about a couple of things. We'll do that after the break. This episode of the Ryan Rosilla podcast is brought to you by McDonald's. McDonald's French fries changed my life. They taught me to want. They taught me the taste of anticipation. There's no wrong way to eat a French fry from McDonald's. Unless you're eating my French fries. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. All right, so Rudy, I know you had a couple follow-ups. I probably, I know you probably couldn't help yourself during the Aaron Gordon thing. <laughs> um, that just sounded weird. I mean, it was Jermichael Green at least has been there, but uh, they don't, you know, they just don't have enough answers. They, they just don't. Um, so go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I like Aaron Gordon. Um, I wasn't upset about the trade. It kind of felt like it was a much better fit in Denver. But I mean, you're right. Who's, who's he talking to in that locker room? I mean, two. I mean, they won both game ones against the Bucks and the Raptors back to back years. So unless it's a game one, I'm not sure Aaron Gordon should be talking about anything playoff related. And he's going to go in there and start talking about like his dunk contest competitions and be like, listen, when I when everybody doubted me and Zach Levine was winning these things, like, I don't know what 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 his motivational speaking is necessarily going to be. But I guess shouts out to him for trying to be a leader. But I did have one note, by the way, on because uh, I'm with you on Mikel Bridges. I love watching that dude play. He's he's a he's a perfect complementary piece to what they want to do, but he could also take over games at times and kind of carry them offensively. And I keep looking back, Ryan, and I go, 
that Sixers trade looks worse and worse and worse because they could use the guy that they need is is a, is a Bridges type player, and they traded him for what Zaire Smith, right, in a future. Miami yeah, they got the Miami pick. pick that they could flip the Harris. I was doing this all this morning because I'm going to do it next week because the Sixers are still going to be around. But if you look, as much as you, I like the Sixers roster, if you look at how bad their luck has been also on stuff between the Fultz transaction and the Bridges deal where they ended up with Zyra Smith and the unprotected pick, which is a big deal, and it's been flipped now. It's I believe it's Oklahoma City's. Mm-hmm. Um it's crazy what the Sixers roster actually could be if two other things worked out. And I'm not even including Okafor in there because at this point, Przingis probably wouldn't even be with the Sixers if they'd taken him or Herzonia, maybe in the right system, as you like to say. My guy. Yep. But I, uh, I, I kind of love... The thing I love about Phoenix is I know exactly what they are. Every version of it. When it's one lineup, when it's small, the only thing, and I can't believe they couldn't figure this out, it's never been easier to find cheaper 18-minute game big men just to give you an option. The fact that they don't have that behind eight and then they got to go Sharich, because Smith, the rookie from Maryland there, he's just not ready. I mean, he got garbage time last night, but they took him 10th. They probably should have just taken another guard in Halliburton to run it all around. Because, look, even though I, I'm really happy for Cameron Payne, I liked him out of college. He had some moments with Oklahoma City where he looked like it was going to be pretty good, and then it was just a disaster. Chicago, on and on and on. He has moments. He had three possessions in a row um, towards the end of the third quarter in game one where he threw a pocket pass right in somebody's foot, turnover. He took a horrible three, and then at the end of the game, he like challenged at the rim instead of passing to somebody else and got blocked and then had a bad possession at the start of the fourth quarter. So everybody's back on the camera pain thing. He had a couple really big shots in game two. He still scares me a little. But other than these minor, those are like two little minor things where, you know, the only thing that scared me was Anthony Davis because I just didn't think they had enough depth for it. But it's the improvement of Aiton. It's that Booker isn't, you know, Utah feels like they need Mitchell to do that stuff. It's crazy that you uh, that Phoenix, you know, Booker's been just kind of one of the guys, and they had double figures all the way across, and they've turned it on now twice where they've had like six or eight-minute stretches where they go, hey, you guys aren't even close to us, and now we're going to show you. So is it crazy? I, I kind of feel like I like watching all three West teams other than the Clippers play basketball more than the Clippers. Like I like watch, I love watching the Suns. I think their five is awesome. I, I love the jazz. I even like, you know, the, the nuggets without, even without Murray. Um, and I hate watching the Clippers. I just do. I don't know if that's a Paul George thing or a Kawhi thing or them kind of coasting, but I, I, I'm stuck in this weird place where I go, I don't really want them to, do the, to win the West, but I also kind of feel like they're the only team in the West that really can beat the, the nets. I don't, is that crazy to think? I just think it's crazy to keep pretending Paul George is somebody that he's... And look, he's going to have like a 35-point game in the playoffs, and then everybody's going to be like, oh, you guys all doubted Paul George. Well, he, like, well, yeah, whatever. I mean, he's good enough to do those things, but I don't know. He, You can almost see in the game, like I'll watch and see moments with him where I go, up, oh, he's out. He's done. Like he's going to... he's gonna. I even thought when he threw the ball back to Kawhi at the end of game one, he wasn't clean at the top of the... It wasn't top of the key. It was, you know, three-point line. He almost threw it out of bounds. Like it was just like, there's no way I'm taking this shot. It's going back. And then, you know, Morris gets it in the corner and they got it blocked. All right. Hey, I want to ask you about the Garrett Cole thing because I think this might be a little age deal or it might just be me on an island again. All right. Here's Garrett Cole, picture of the Yankees being asked about everybody's new freak out topic, or at least we're talking baseball again. Some places are about, you know, sticky stuff. And trying to get a better grip on the baseball, and this stuff has been going on for absolutely ever. You have you have no idea how many guys actually do this. Um, and here's Garrett Cole 
being asked about it. Have you ever used spider attack while pitching? Um, I don't. I don't know. I, I don't know if uh, I don't know quite. I don't quite know how to answer that, to be honest. Um, I mean, there are customs and practices that have been passed down from older players to younger players, from the last generation of players to this generation of players, and um, you know, I I think. Uh, I think there are some things that are certainly out of bounds in that regard, and and uh, I've stood pretty stood pretty firm in, in terms of that, uh, in terms of the communication between our peers and whatnot, um, you know. And and I again, like I mentioned earlier, there's you know this is important to a lot of people that love the game, and this is including including the players in this room, including fans, including you know teams. And so if MLB wants to you know legislate some more stuff. That's a conversation that we can have um, because ultimately we should all be pulling in the same direction. Okay. Look, um, PR 101, not exactly killing it. Rosillo PR, our approach is give it a day or two. It'll go away. But for people that think it sounds smart to like trash him because of how bad his answer is, what the fuck did you want him to say? What did you want him to say? Yep. Guilty using stuff, cheating. What's up? You know, he did. And by the way, all the people that are mad about his answer, you want him to do something you wouldn't do if you got caught. All right. Because people's first choice in the instinct game here is usually to lie to save themselves. All right. That's usually what the, of all the options, tell the truth is usually behind save my ass. And that's not even what Cole's doing here in this case. All right. Cole is in a brutal spot. He can't say yes, but he's actually respectful enough to everybody that's surrounding him that he doesn't want to outright lie. And so then you've got all the geniuses that do what I do, trashing him for a bad answer when one, they're hypocrites and two, they're not even being close to realistic about the spot that he's in. No, it's it's a good point, but I, I think like the five second pause makes it so much worse because clearly he has also... Did he not have any idea that that was coming? Like he had to know that this question was coming. Shouts out to the reporter for actually just straight up asking him because usually I feel like guys kind of beat around the bush on that. But he had he didn't have any other like, you know, there was no preparation for him to to have an answer prepared, even if it was a complete bullshit answer. Okay, so 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 you didn't you didn't expect him to tell the truth. You didn't you're actually happy he didn't lie, but you don't like the words he picked and you don't like his pauses in a a really brutal spot for a guy. I am in the minority here where I actually would respect him so much more if he just came out and said, yes, I have. Well, and he's I, not. No one's going to do that. I would know while he's playing. Oh, but well, what, congrats. But what's going to ha- what's going to happen to him? I mean, I, everybody knows he uses it and the league doesn't even really legislate it. So it's not his fault that he's taking advantage of this loophole in the rules. So if he came out and straight up said, hey, you know, like, yes, I've been using it because like that's what a bunch of guys around the league do. And I'm sorry, but that's this is the advantage that we have. I would yeah. have absolutely no problem with that. But no, I'm, no I'm one's going to do you're that. Wrong. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I would. I feel like the, the weird pause and not being prepared for the question made it so much worse than even lying. Fine. Delivery. Not a public speaker. I throw I throw upper 90s consistently. Straight gas. That's what I do. I'm not here to win votes. But when I'd heard all day, so many people that do this job going bad look for Garrett Cole. Ooh, got to be better. 
got to do how how do you answer it that and you're just like but it was none of you though. guys you uh, i don't admit i give him I, I don't think he, I think he was an impossible situation. He's not going to come out and say, hey, I'm cheating all the time. And by the way, if you did do it, then you could be opening up the door to other managers as soon as you take them out and being like, well, since, because that was kind of the code of all this stuff. Everybody knew everybody was doing it. And so that's why some dugouts would get so pissed when the other dugout would be like, hey, check his glove. And it's like, seriously, you guys want to do this all night? Fine. We'll just keep checking everybody's gloves. And that's why they get so mad at the first people that started it. So now if you're Cole and you say, hey, yeah, I'm done. Like, I'm doing it all the time. What's up? Then the first the first game that he's starting, the next manager could be like, all right, fine. He admitted it. So we're just going to screw with him because he's awesome. And let's just have Garrett Cole get checked again the whole time, which I love, by the way, too, is that's the new thing that baseball wants to do is do like pat downs eight <laughs> to 10 times a game because that'll help speed it up. But both both things are true, Ryan. It was a bad look. And, you know, Rosillo PR, everyone's going to get over it in two days. They probably are. I'm already over. I don't really care. So I just think both things are true. I love it. Sarudi turns the page. Um, I, I just... I don't think it's remotely interesting, insightful for other people that do my job to trash Garrett Cole without being honest about what the situation was. That's fair. That's it. Right. Hey, you want to, you don't like his delivery? Cool. But to mean to sit there and destroy him for the message. You know what's funny is this is a, this is a story. It's not entirely the same thing, but it's kind of funny. Remember the McGuire Senate hearings where Palmero just was like, I'm giving you the hardest sell ever. And then you're like, okay, not true. Yeah, the finger. Um, yeah. McGuire's like, I used, but it's in the past. Like, I don't want to deal with this stuff. So that night, I did, I did a Celtics game. I was at the Garden for a Celtics game. And I was working for Comcast, which was the Celtics TV affiliate. And I used to do this deal, which was kind of strange because I lived in Boston and I'd be in the Garden and the TV studio was like 25 minutes north, but I was desperate for work, broke, whatever. So they'd be like, hey, can you do post-game, but can you do it with us in studio? You know? And I was like, yeah, I could figure it out. Like, there's a post-game wrap-up show. By the time that's done, I can probably be there in the A's. Like, no problem. So they're like, can you do the B's too? We don't have another guest. I go, well, what, are the, what are we doing in the B's? They're like, we're doing the McGuire here. I go, look, I didn't see any of it. I was at the game. I was there for pregame. I didn't see any of the stuff. And honestly, at that point, I'd been kind of steroided out. I just didn't find it all that interesting. Hey, steroids are bad. Sucks this happened. All right, got it. Move it on. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, and for somebody that talked about it nonstop during that time, if you had a radio show, you were talking steroids all the time. And I was kind of on the back end of it in 06, 07, 08 ish. And then it was, people were just like, all right, we're done. So, um, I go, Hey, I didn't see any of the, I didn't see any of the Senate hearing stuff. I go, I, I watched, I was basketball the whole day. And so I was kind of filling in on this show and one of the main hosts was gone a lot. So I was getting more run and I don't know if he disliked me. I don't think he loved me. It wasn't nasty or anything, right? But they were like, dude, don't worry about it. You don't need to see the hearings. You'll be fine. We'll just get out there and kick it around a little. <laughs> I'm like, all right, no problem. Which so is the finished? last thing I know you want. You would you never want to do that. You never, never. You hate being unprepared. You hate not knowing, watching games, whatever. So this is your nightmare. Well, because I'm just, I'm like, wait, you guys want to have an opinion roundtable on this Senate hearing thing, and I haven't, I haven't watched any of it. And they're like, don't worry about it. And by the way, that's just a tip in life. It's like when I took my first insurance series test for the small window that I thought I was going to be an insurance <laughs> consultant. Um, the guy that ran the company was like, don't worry about it. He's like, the test is all common sense. I'm like, it's all common sense for an insurance license. He's like, yeah, you'll be fine. Failed it. And yeah. then guys, my buddies were like, is Rosillo an idiot? What's going on? And then I went to the other guy and he's like, yeah, it's common sense if you've worked in insurance your whole life. I think I've told that story before. Anyway, moving on. So 
we get to it. So you have to remember the backstory that the other host kind of wanted to like, you know, mark his territory in the corner a little bit like an animal because I was I was there a lot and I was doing all right. So they were like, oh, hearings today. Mark McGuire embarrassed himself and they go to me and I'm like, well, you know, what do you what do you expect? What do you expect out of the guy? Like he did his best and I haven't seen it. I never do this. And I'm just bullshitting to kind of like kick it back to them. And the other host is like, how could you be so naive, Ryan? You're embarrassed. Like destroyed me, lit me up on the TV show. And I never forget going to commercial break and being like, are you serious? Did you do that on purpose to make me look bad knowing that I hadn't seen it? And that's what it was. It wasn't about McGuire. The guy was like, oh, I'm going to pounce on him and remind him who the real host of this show is. And it was it was fucking bullshit. But it's also and because I don't want to be painted as some guy who's actually mad at Garrett Cole because I'm not mad at him at all. I I really don't care. Um, I don't care about any of this like cheating in baseball. I just think it happens and I don't really care. But there's nothing worse in media or sports media specifically when different people on different shows try to out mad someone else like about something that everyone's everyone thinks is sketchy like or was wrong but they're like i'm going to show that why i'm super mad and then someone's like no i'm going to take it to a 10 someone's like i'm going to take it to an 11 right and it's yeah. this constant pissing contest of who can be more mad about something that actually isn't that big of a deal and it happens all the time and that doesn't make a good show just because you're mad about something that everyone else is mad about no i'm with you i'm with you on that one um last thing here the Jokic t-shirt's lame i get why they made it <laughs> This 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 shirt that was like too slow. Well, yeah, his feet are quick, but he's kind of slow. Not great at defensively. Also accurate. Low pick. What is low pick? Did he go higher and we didn't know? Didn't they pass on him, I think, twice that year too? And so there was that. Uh, but it is a constant thing. We've never had more access to hate. The superstars have never had more access to hate. I've mentioned this numerous times, but if you look at like a collection of the top 10 players in the league, they all have ad campaigns built around all the hate that they get. And so this was just, I don't even blame yeah. the Nuggets team, PR, whatever, one-on-one, but the shirt uh, was lame. Shirt was lame. Don't want one. Didn't order one. I think RG3 sure started it. He started a movement, really, with, with all this stuff. LeBron had it. They had the villain thing for Nike where he wore the black hat and all that. And then um, i never forget the Harden one where it was like, you should play defense, no offense. And he was like, that'd be boring. And you were like, cool. Awesome. Awesome ad. Yeah. Really cool. (laughs) Good stuff. (laughs) Okay. uh, The Garrett Cole thing I'll calm down on. Uh, We have Bruce Feldman. Love talking college ball with him. The playoff. We knew it was coming. Is it going to be 12 teams? What does it mean? We'll talk to him next. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip. From free high-speed Wi-Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more, book direct at LQ.com. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Fox Sports and The Athletic. It's Bruce Feldman, my college football bud. Okay, we knew the expansion thing was always going to happen no matter what they said. Uh, I've argued against it for certain reasons, but I always knew it was going to happen, and I'll enjoy it once it happens. What does this mean? What do the leak proposals of this mean? Because I've read everything where it's like, well, 12 makes sense because if we do eight or we do six, this is the problem. Where are you at right now with your understanding of the story? Uh, you know, the Athletic had actually reported on 12 back in April, um, and so it has gotten more momentum as we're getting closer to these meetings in a few days. So I think that's added to it. Here's the, here's what I think is the reality of this, Ryan. And I think you and I both know this, that like they are desperate for money, right? A bunch of places and not just in college athletics, certainly 
have really taken on a big financial hit, especially in the wake of the pandemic. So here's an opportunity for them to make a ton more money. It's an opportunity for them to sell, hey, you are going to have a better opportunity. You're going to actually have somewhat of an opportunity now to make the playoff if you're not in the power five. So from what I've heard, as well as others, that there would be at least a guaranteed spot for the top group of five program. Look back last year, Cincinnati was winning games. And albeit it was a weird year, but Cincinnati was winning games, they basically had a glass ceiling, right? And so what I think the compromise in this is if you're at the top of the food chain, that's the Big Ten and the SEC where most of the money is, and certainly the SEC where the top consistent you know, powerhouse programs are, they're able to sell, hey, we're going to expand this, but we may be able to get four teams in the playoff. So if you go to 12 and you have the the guaranteed spots for the Pac-12 conference champ and as well as the ACC, which usually is getting in because of Clemson anyway, but certainly the Pac-12 and the Big 12 who have been snubbed at times, um, then that appeases them. The, the SEC has a chance to get maybe three or four teams in. That would certainly appease them. And you'd at least give a little bit of a fig leaf or whatever the term is for the group of five for somebody. Now, it's not going to probably help the MAC or the Sun Belt, but at least there's some aspect or some illusion of opportunity there. And there's big money that's going to come from it. Yeah. I'm, I'm all set with like, and I don't mean that because usually when I say all set, it means I don't want anything to do with it, but I'm, I'm good with the, the non-power five schools feeling like there is something there for them. Because honestly, I couldn't ever really make an argument other than maybe that Boise team that lost in Nevada on the missed kick. But even then, you know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, they would have been in the national title game, but more often than not, like I'm, I'm an elitist when it comes to the college football programs, because it's just not the same thing. It's not the same thing to go through your schedule and go through even an ACC schedule. I, I think, you know, um, and I, and I, I mean that as a compliment, um, cause certain years of the ACC or whatever, like I could have picked on the PAC 12 there, but it is pretty classic college football that the first version of this, they'd make sure one person was getting screwed out of that group. And sometimes it's been two. So people can talk about the lack of turnover, which I think is a really big mistake if you're making changes because of a cyclical situation where it's Bama and Clemson all the time, or, you know, we've got Ohio State or, or you know, what, whoever else you want to include. I guess it would only really be those three. Um, so, you know, like, oh, it's just these two teams. I'm sick of this. Let's expand. But I, I kind of never, and look, I've sat in those meetings. Like I remember being in the seminars with you going back 10 years ago at ESPN, Bill Hancock coming out and telling us all the things they couldn't do. And he just was making it up. And then they would do exactly the thing Bill Hancock said, Hey, we're not going to do this. And then they would do it like two years later. So, you know, I understand that his job is just kind of sit there and say stuff, but it never ends up holding any water. So I'm just wondering, like, what do you think the biggest motivation is? Is it just simple as, hey, business expand because they could have just done this and done a bigger TV deal the first time around? Is it really the motivation of lost revenue for the past year and a half to want to go ahead and do this? Or is it because they're mad that they feel like it's just Bama Clemson every year? I think there's a couple of factors there. There's also one factor that we haven't touched on yet, which is years ago, and you mentioned those seminars we would do either at the Radisson or the airport. The airport. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, near, near, uh, West Hartford. But the thing that's, that, that I remember is the bowls. If you're not a person who is like diehard been covering college football long before I was covering it, 
it's like there's a reverence for the bowl structure and the bowl people and the people in those tangerine colored blazers and everything like that. And if you are, I, I'm sure you're sitting there going, you know, like, I, right. don't, I never understood that. I honestly never really understood it either. Look, I really like the people from the holiday bowl, but you know, like, all right, it goes, it only goes so far. And yet there was such a reverence and a deferential treatment. And I think this like, honestly, to some degree went for our old bosses at ESPN who have, you know, definitely have influence that they were going to look out for the bowl partners as much as possible. I feel like that has, it's like a fist, a fist that has kind of become a little less clenched now. Maybe the forearm is, 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 is weary or whatever. There's a lot of factors, but I think that is something that has, I, you know, I feel has been eased up some, I definitely think it's money drives everything. So I think, you know, don't let the people try to tell you there's all, all these other factors. I think money is a huge reason. I also think they, you know, it's power and it's ability to, to sell. Um, there are games that you could have in November that should matter, but they only matter to those teams because they don't have any playoff ramifications. You know, you and I, you know, I still work at a TV company. We both worked at ESPN for a long time. Um, those are big ratings numbers that, that potentially you're leaving money on the table. And I think that is a big driving factor. I mean, I, I think there's really something to the fact that there were so many games, you can talk about the Alabama Clemson fatigue. And I think that's, that's real to some extent, but I just think it's so much of, oh, wait, this USC Oregon game, which people should care about, but they only care about if they're USC and Oregon fans, not even PAC 12 fans care. Um, it, it could have weight, you know, going down the road. Um, and there are teams, I think that, you know, use USC as an example, that USC team that got smoked by Alabama when Max Brown was a quarterback and then Darnold took over later and they went on a run. There is a chance that a team that might be nine and three and gets off to a rocky start because maybe a freshman quarterback, or maybe there was an injury that they could be dangerous in a playoff. I think it's, a, you know, it's not, it's going to be the, the exception rather than the rule. But I do think there's some of that that can happen where a team can get on a roll. I mean, look at, you know, if somehow LSU had lost to Texas in the whatever it was week two when that game got really close, LSU got way better as the year went on. They got way better on defense. There are teams who do that in college football. So I, I think this is going to be an interesting dynamic. I'm not sure how I feel about the number 12. I mean, it doesn't matter how I feel, obviously, but, um, you know, I, I'm glad that they are going to have room, at least for the illusion of the opportunity. If you're Boise State, if you're San Diego State, if you're Cincinnati, if you're, you know, UCF or whoever. But um, you know, the idea that you're going to have four teams from one conference—I mean, that's going to—I don't know. I think that's going to smell a little funny to to a bunch of people when they when they if it comes to that. Yeah, because I I know you know my position over the years has been. Like, I don't like that a 9-7 and seven team can win the Super Bowl in the NFL. I don't. I, I know the teams that are 9-7 and seven think it's awesome. Um, but I'm kind of like, well, what was the point? What, what's the point? Especially in single elimination, if you're going to do this. All right. So, if we went to LSU's year. So, Auburn loses the Iron Bowl. They're 9-3 and three and they're in. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, that's... that, And then so, you know... what? <laughs> <laughs> what if they're playing in Alabama, you know, in a rematch? Well, they wouldn't be playing them because in this case, the top four teams, and that's what I saw in the proposals, the top four teams would have a bye. 
five through 12 would play each other again. I'm with you on the bowl part of it. Like, look, the bowl thing is ingrained. The people that are with the bowl committees want to make sure they protect um, whatever it is that they have, you know, and, and the bowls, anyone that's ever worked with them, you're like, look, they're the hospitality part of it is is on point. But I think there's a survival part of it of protecting themselves. And now if you package those first games by attaching them to some of the bowls that maybe not everybody's as locked into now because we really care about the end game more. I mean, when you make the playoff more important, it's going to hurt by, you know, I think a byproduct that it's going to hurt the national or casual attention into some of those other ones. So now if you're labeling some of those other playoff games, you know, attached to some of the secondary bowls and that helps kind of everybody along those lines. But I guess, you know, I, I just think if you lose three games in a college football season, I don't really love the idea that you get another chance at winning a national championship. And that's been my standpoint the whole time and i know i'll love the games i know i'll watch them all i'll talk about them the whole time the ratings will do well it'll be more money and by the way it'll be more money not only to help them after the pandemic but help all of these programs that spend and spend and spend on coaches and then buy them out so they can talk about being broke they're horrible it's about spending their own money and it's been an absolute faucet of cash for years and years and it's the first time it got tightened up so this will help with that but i just don't like it i don't like team five verse twelve having a one game shot to get in it against a team that went 13 and 0. Yeah, look, I mean this first school you mentioned, uh, you know, at rank 12 was Auburn. Would they spend a fortune to get rid of Gus Malzahn a year after that? Um just to buy him up, to buy him out straight up. Right, cuz every year he's either going to be fired or go to yeah. an extension. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was just and then that's the most, you know, like Auburn is the most Auburn example of of how that works. But I, you know, as we're talking about it, I'm looking at the other team that fits into that category. It was actually Wisconsin, who would have been, you know, bat- hanging around there. Yeah, I mean, Wisconsin got blown out by Ohio State, lost to Illinois that year. By the way, Illinois wasn't good at all. Um, and I think by the end of the year, because they did beat Minnesota on the road, um, you know, they were there at at whatever twelve. I mean, they would have been an interesting team to evaluate. I mean, again, this is a team that didn't have like. You know, you lose to Illinois, who's unranked and bad, and you get blown out by the one really good team you play. But I think that's the that's the dynamic where we seem to be headed for. Um, I don't know if I would feel better if it was like, hey, because you're not going to put in the Mac and Sunbelt champs automatically. There's no way any Power Five um, power broker is going to go for that. I I I think what what is interesting is your point about nine and seven Super Bowl teams, like. I think we're conditioned to whatever we're conditioned to. Like, so me, I'm, I'm a big NFL fan and I just feel like I'm so used to it that I don't think twice of, Ooh, the giants are in there now and you know, or whatever you just like the week to week doesn't matter. I mean, we've, and I've done this certainly a lot of people in college football have argued we have the best regular season in sports because every game matters. Well, you know, like if you lose to Illinois and they're, you know, they're a two and seven team and you're still in the playoff, does every game matter? I mean, I guess it kind of does, but it really doesn't, you know, so not in the same way it used to. And I think that's just, you know, fans will adjust because we have no choice. You know, that's, that's the reality. Yeah. It was always going to happen. I, you know, that part of it, I'm fine with, I'm just, as I've said throughout the entire time, because the funny thing is, is, you know, I would look at like eight, nine, 10, 11, and go, can you imagine those arguments? Because now what you're doing is you're opening up the argument. So maybe that's better for it. But I guess I'm just going to be sitting there being like, you guys are ranked 17th and you actually want to be the, tw-. like, you think you deserve to be 12th, you know? And it's just, 
Well, well, I don't know. I don't that's think that like, team should have a chance to win a national championship. I just don't. Think about like, you know, uh, like March Madness when the CBS show is out there and then all of a sudden you're arguing and it, it varies from year to year. However, they kind of change the format. But all of a sudden we're in the like, you know, and I watch these too, where it's like, you know, whether it's Jimmy Dykes playing or uh, Joe Lenardi's deal where it's like the last four in. People get really worked up about that. Now, it's a lot different, I think, where you can have a team and we've seen plenty of examples of this where in college basketball, I feel like teams can get hot. And if you have two really good players, it can make a big difference. You know, Khalil Mack was one of the best college football players anybody's seen for the last decade. He wasn't going to change a, a playoff for Buffalo. You know, it's just the reality. So um, it's fun to talk about. I think people will still get worked up over a way we were 15 and we should have been 11 or whatever. Um, but the, but I think the reality is with college football, those teams, I'll be, I'll be stunned if anybody is a double-digit seed, 10, 11, 12 and they even make it to the final game, much less win it. I don't know, man. One game. I mean, still with basketball, we're arguing about who's 64 or 65 or 68 or 69. The odds of that team actually winning six games um, is is remote. I mean, I know we've had a few Cinderella's in the, in the final well, four. What was Villanova? Was a nine seed when uh, John, that John Pernod, 11? Whatever, and Pinkney. Yeah, 11, right? So that's a... <sighs> That's about as far as you probably get away from it. But again, college basketball is way different, than, you know, the sport, I think, than college football, you know. Like the one thing I wonder if you'd hear about, Ryan, is people will bring up, you know what, um, injury risk and more, you know, the season's longer. Um, short of that, I'm not sure. Like I, I talked to somebody in the SEC recently and they made the case, well, like, well, now the SEC t- title game's not going to matter that much. It was like... Really? So what? I mean, you had Georgia and Alabama play for the national title game three years ago. It didn't like, not like people were like that bent out of shape about it. By the way, Villanova eight seed. Did you say eight? And then I, I, I said, said nine. So we'll, yeah. we'll okay. Uh, George Mason, I think was an 11 seed. So, all right. Um, you also have done a lot of work on, and I want to finish up here, but the name image and likeness deal and how much this is impacting what's going to be happening with recruiting. So give me a sense of the concern, the angst, the excitement around this, and, and how much this is really going to impact the game. Uh, I don't know if there's excitement. There's a lot of angst if we talk to coaches because they feel like on one level they are losing some power dynamic, which maybe they should lose it because you were talking about the money factor involved in that. But also there's three big things that have kind of happened in this month. For people who aren't big college football fans, this is for at first time in like 15 months, it's open season on recruiting. There's tons of official, tons of unofficial visits. So that's going on. This is the, this is the hardest evaluation period because no one's been able to see these players in person, right? So there's that. You have the portal where now, and I talked to a bunch of coaches for this story I did for The Athletic, where a bunch of coaches are talking about basically third-party people poaching and basically trying to steer guys out of programs into programs. And that's affecting it. And also now you got name, image, and likeness, which July 1st is not that far off. And the thing I heard the most from from a lot of coaches was, we still don't know how this is going to play. We can teach kids and, and bring in marketing executives and marketing experts to help them build their brand. I don't think they know practically how is this going to really work. The states are all over the map. You got some of these politicians who are buffoons who are coming in. It's like, it's weird. You see some of these people from Washington, D.C. and Mark Emmert, it's like, 
you know, which jackass do you, do you want to trust less? You know, like kind of, it's just really strange how this is kind of uh, evolved. And again, we're right up against it in a couple of weeks. And so I, what I think you are seeing already is some schools doing deals where players can have the opportunity to have these, you know, basically endorsement deals lined up to hit the ground running and, and can they use it as a, as a, as a recruiting advantage over some other place? And the NCAA is sitting there going, well, we don't want to create an un, uneven playing field. Well, you had an uneven, uneven playing field from day one, right? You know, Stanford, Steve, our buddy went to a place, his education is much better than almost everybody else who he was getting recruited against. If you're so inclined for that, the NCA tries to bend over backward. I think the NCA wants to try to to shoehorn this into as as little flexibility for the for the student athletes or the players, and you have politicians getting in the way, and it's a big mess. I I don't think anybody knows exactly how this is going to unfold in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be stuff that happens, and we're going to look at it in the short term, and then a couple of years from now, and you're like, oh, this was wrong. I mean, there's no doubt, but it, just because people aren't prepared or don't know, it's still the right thing to do. Because every time I've heard an argument against it, they're all horrible arguments. And I was looking at some of the stuff yesterday that they were trying to use on the pro side of it. And I disagreed with a bunch of that too. But I go, yeah, but at the core, like this, this should always be the simple thing. Like, what's the problem with guys and the name, image, and likeness? Like, what's the problem? Like, oh, somebody's going to figure out some way to circumvent this through the recruiting part good. of it and get cash. You'll be like, okay, oh, so guys are going to get cash as recruits? Uh-oh. You know what well, I mean? Well, it's not even the recruits part. Think about it this way. So you and I both know Liner. Use him as the example. Don't even, you know, never mind Reggie for the time being. But like, you know, you know, plenty of U.S. well-off USC boosters, alums. It's like, hey, we can have Matt Liner come to our kid's birthday party when he's the star quarterback. What's that worth? Is that worth five grand? Is that worth 10 grand? How many does he, how many does he do? Um, you know, that's a real opportunity for, players to rake in cash, then there's, it's not, but it's, you know, I've had coaches make the point, you know what, look at Instagram. It's not necessarily football players. There's a gymnast who may have a million followers. Somebody else made the case. Do you remember the, their name is Allison Stokey. She was a, like a pole vaulter, a cow. She had a huge Instagram following. There are going to be people and it's probably, it may be more, as many, if not more women than, than male athletes who have a big followings that they can leverage and cash in and a lot of times those athletes now maybe it's a little different if they're if they're gymnasts and they can do speaking engagements and whatnot after the olympics but a lot of times you know for football players if you're great for basketball players if you're great you're going to cash in in the pros afterwards because those are big league opportunities for some of these athletes especially on the female side they may be able to cash in more in college than they can after it just because the league opportunities aren't there and so I hope that the NCA can get out of the way of that because that's a big financial opportunity that a lot of these student athletes really deserve that they're missing out on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to think just if you say that out loud, like if you're somebody that goes, oh, it's and, and honestly, the people that argue it and like there's some stuff with Canel over the years where I go, he takes a lot of heat for this, but I agree with him on this point. Um, I've never agreed with him on finding a way to make the college athlete situation better. And, you know, back to like those seminars we used to do. I remember Herb Street, like going at 
Hancock a little bit, being like, hey, how come when it was 11 games, you know, you couldn't add another one because of the academic requirements? And then how come, like, when you added the 12th game and then you added the 13th game of the conference championship? And now you're at, like, at what point? And Bill would be like, really good, Kirk, great question, great question. And he'd be like, you know, we still, it's still important. <laughs> like, it's not important. It's fine. Like, but no one can ever say it. It's kind of like back to my Garrett Cole ran a little bit earlier. College football can't say, yeah, you know what? We actually will find a way around it because there's so much cash out there for it. So when you're making those kinds of decisions and it has nothing to do really with the short-term part of the athlete, like, I just think it's incredibly wrong, especially as you put it. If you're a gymnast with a million followers because you're gorgeous and a bunch of dudes want to follow you and then all of a sudden you're pushing pea protein and teeth whitener, like, why should the NCAA be able to say, no, you actually can't do this? And by the way, you can't do it until you become less marketable. Yeah, <laughs> Like, I'm, your page is worth it, but you're actually not competing or doing anything. Yeah, I, I mean, I even think of this, like, my old uh, producer at Foxbow, Garrett, his daughter was a gymnast. And I don't know how, like, she was a good gymnast. I don't think she ever had aspirations, real aspirations of going to the Olympics. But I think for, for young girls like that, they look up to... Uh, some of these college athletes as role models. You and I might not be able to to name them, you know, but they have they have a big following and they're very influential there. Why should they not be able to 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 cash in on that and and that opportunity? And and again, because the NCA is looking like so suspiciously at at the level playing field because they know that some coach in the SEC might do this. You know, I think it's it's really screwed up. Bruce Feldman, The Athletic, and Fox Sports. The Athletic's been all over this playoff uh, expansion story. It's happening. We don't know exactly which version of it. And everybody's going to make a lot of cash. Everybody's going to have more games to watch. So that is actually a good thing. So thanks, man. We'll talk to you soon. Uh, Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Buy. It's Wonder Water. So I was wondering what made Buy so great. And it's actually pretty simple. Buy has antioxidants, electrolytes, and no artificial sweeteners. And the flavors are delicious. For me, it has to be Buy Zambia Bing Cherry. So for flavorful hydration, choose Buy. It's Wonder Water. Learn more about Buy and discover all of the exotic, bold flavors at drinkbuy.com. James Posey joins us, and you can check him out every week on the Posecast and contributor to basketballnews.com. Played in the NBA 1999-2011, and anybody that saw him play, I would say every team needs a James Posey. That, that's how I felt about you. That's how I felt about your game and your <laughs> career. Um, how, do you, how do you feel about like the way peers, your teammates, and other guys you played against? Because I just think you brought it. I think you brought it in a way that very few guys do. Uh, you know, it feels good to just be, uh, you know, respected for how I approached the game and how I played the game. Uh, you know, a, a, a team, uh, first guy and doing whatever it takes to, to win games. Uh, and also just the amount of work I put in, um, to, you know, to, uh, hone my skill, my shooting ability, and also just the toughness that I brought to the team. And like I said, just being a great teammate at the end of the day. Now, when you came out of Xavier, uh, your first round pick, you know, 99, as you mentioned, um, did you think there was anyone else that was going to, because Denver takes you 19, or excuse me, 18, did you have any idea that maybe you could go, because there were some weird spots in front of you where guys completely flamed out, which I mean, happens in the first round all the time, but did you think it was always Denver? I mean, what was your understanding of where you were going to go in the draft that year? I really didn't know. Uh, it's crazy because I, I worked out for like uh, 16 teams and I almost had a, a draft day uh, workout with Philly 
uh, which, you know, it was just like, you know, it was too late by then to go work out for Philly. But uh, being from Cleveland, I uh, they had two picks. And we knew they were going to take a, a, a point guard uh, and they were going to take Andre Miller. And then they had another uh, uh, pick. I think it was 11th pick or something like that. It took Trajan. And so being from Cleveland, you know, of course, family, friends, and even myself, like, you know, that'd be a good look for me to, you know, to get drafted by the home team. And so when they didn't uh, draft me, uh, it was a little disappointing. At the end of the day, I just thought it would be nice. Uh, you know, people, my family and friends, they were upset. Of course, they want to they wanna have me home and, and local, uh, but it didn't happen. So after that, it was just like the waiting game and just not really knowing. And when when Denver, you know, drafted me with the 18 pick, you know, it was just, you know, a, a blessing and just, you know, the, the wait it was over. So uh, that was my little draft day uh, situation where, you know, I, I would mind, you know, going to the cast and I thought it would be a great pick for them, but it didn't happen that way. So, you know, I, like I told my parents, you know, at the time, because we went to the draft in D.C., I told them, I said, you know, we wasn't banking on going to the league, you know. So if I don't get drafted, period, you know, y'all taught me well, y'all raised me well. So I just had to get a job or whatever it may be. So um, that was just our approach. We enjoyed the experience on draft night. And the whole, you know, the whole little um, weekend. So uh, we got our, I guess, our money's worth. And for us, you know, it was a, a dream come true uh, and a, a great opportunity. Yeah, those workouts, I, I was lucky enough when I was still living in Boston. And they, when they used to like me, they would invite me up to watch. Um, <laughs> and, they, you know, it would be closed. And then you know, maybe they'd sneak me down a little bit earlier. And the... The workouts are like everything and they're nothing all at the same time. Like they can be the most revealing thing. Like it was when I got to see Rondo a couple times, I was like, oh my gosh, like this guy is so different. Like, what is he doing? And he was just destroying big guys. He was destroying other guards. And then I remember like another guard from UConn, I got a chance to talk to him after the workout. And I was like, how'd it go? He's like, oh, this is it. He goes, I'm definitely going here. And like, not only did the Celtics never take him, he never like even made a made an impact in the league at all. Do you have any workout just Because I'd imagine with your size, and being from Xavier, like you probably wanted to really take it to some of the other guys from bigger programs that were maybe projected to go higher. Do you have any good draft workout stories? Because I'd imagine you must have done pretty well. But then with the amount of turnaround you have, I know there's also workouts where sometimes you guys show up and you're absolutely exhausted and the team thinks you're not any good. Yeah, I mean, that was, like I said, I, I worked out for, I mean, you know, you say 16 teams and just to turn around as far as the workouts, uh, the Seattle workout, uh, then w- was tough with uh, Coach Nate, and then also um, the Phoenix uh, workout was tough. Where it was, it was basically like the conditioning part of it. You know, we do the the the, uh, the drills and skill work, but at the end, it was it was the cardio that was. I'm like, man, like shit, I didn't know if I was running a marathon or you know, uh, you know, the Boston Marathon or something like that or whatever. But the conditioning part was tough, but. Just the whole experience, like I said, it was it's new territory for me learning the NBA game and, you know, a different situation. So uh, for myself, you know, I have fun with that. But just those two teams in itself at the end, they put on this conditioning test, man, it really it, it really tried to break you. And one thing I didn't break, but it was still tough at the end. <laughs> so you go to Denver, you don't win any games for a few years and uh, you get traded. Were you surprised when you were traded? Because that was probably... No, I think there are moments as younger players, especially on a lesser team, where you're getting buckets and you're feeling like, hey, I'm a scorer. 
Um, and you could always, you could always, but that's just not what you were asked to do later on in your career. What was that transition like for you? Well, I mean, we won games in, in Denver. We just didn't win enough. And uh, I just, when I think about being drafted to that team, it was, it was like we, we had Antonio McDice, Nick Danexo. You know, we had Chauncey. We had Ray for friends, Keon Clark, George McClough. Like we had some players and, you know, we just couldn't win enough games to even just sniff the playoffs. And, you know, coming to the NBA, it was more so um, like, you know, why can't we win? And that just goes to show, like, the West was tough. And uh, with that talent, we still just didn't, uh, didn't win enough. Uh, so things changed after that where, you know, players got traded and signed elsewhere. So it started the, the rebuild. And so I was there to tell in with uh, Jawan Howard. Uh, even Aiden Johnson was there uh, myself. And so, um, you know, it was for the organization, they just chose to start rebuilding. So they traded me to, um, to the Houston Rockets. And the funny thing about it is I didn't even know I was traded. Uh, the day I got traded, I was, uh, we were playing Dallas. And so we go through shoot around and everything. And I go home, I take my nap and then I'm heading to the arena. So I'm, I'm by Cherry Creek mall and I get a call from my agent. You know, I, I pretty much talk to my agent, uh, you know, every day or whatever. So, uh, I'm talking to him and he asked me how, how I feel. I said, I feel, you know, I feel great, you know, on my way to the, uh, I said, I feel great. And he says, uh, so what are you doing? I said, I mean, we, we got a game tonight, so I'm on my way to the arena. He said, on your way to the arena? I said, yeah. He said, you, you just got traded. I said, what? And so I just remember busting a U-turn, you know what I'm saying? Busting a U-turn on the, <laughs> in front of the mall. And then I said, okay, um, where I get traded to? And then he said, the Rockets. So I, I'm already living in Houston in the offseason anyway. So I put my, you know, my foot on the gas. I'm, I'm hauling ass to get home. I'm trying to pack my stuff so I can get out tonight, that, the same night or whatever. And so he, he said, so they didn't let you know that you had got traded? I said, no. I said, we had shoot around and everything. And I didn't even get a phone call at all. And so, like I said, I was heading to the game just expecting to play. And I got traded. So um, that was my first taste of being you know, traded. <laughs> and it was just crazy how it just went down. What was that Miami run like in 06? Because, you know, like I said at the beginning, you guys can't get into the playoffs. You're wondering, probably wondering, like, where's my career going? And then you end up with a Miami team that that finds a way. I mean, you guys were down 13 points to Dallas. I mean, it's one of the, the great comebacks in finals history because that thing looked like it was over. And give me Give me a sense of what that team was like and, and what it was like to pull that out because it was the core guys in, in Shaq and Wade, but it was also a collection of like a bunch of guys thrown in there in the last minute, it felt like. Uh, well, you know, that uh, we got there. We had a rocky start with um, with Stan and then Rouse came out uh, and took over as, as the uh, head coach. Hey, when, when that change is made, I, I always feel like players, like it, it's human nature. You're going to buy into somebody that has a resume over somebody that doesn't. And for that, you know, comparing Stan Van Gundy to Pat, it's just no comparison because of what Pat Riley had done. What was that like? What was that transition like for that team? Because it certainly seemed like Shaq was in favor of it. Yeah, well, you just you just said it there. The experience of, um, you know, Pat Riley, you know, he's been there uh, and done that winning as a coach and um, and Shaq. You know him winning championships in uh 
you know, in LA as well. And for, for us, those were the only two leaders that we had and have been there. So of course, everyone is, you know, paying uh, attention, you know, saying all eyes and ears on, on those two guys to lead the way. And uh, Shaq during that time, he just made it, you know, everything. So um, not easy, but I'll say comfortable for us and supporting us where we didn't panic about anything. He kept us uh, engaged. He kept uh, our spirits high and, you know, roused. At the end of the day, he kept preaching, all we need is one game. And that's what our mindset was, just to get one game, you know, after being down 0-2. And once we got down 0-2 and got that first game, you know, you start feeling, you feeling okay. So it's like, okay, we won't get swept, but we still need another game to tie. And <laughs> so we said, okay, let's let's see if we could put a string together. We just need to tie it up. And, you know, we got back home and we got those two wins. So now it's, it's 0-0. And we feeling good, like, okay, now, you know, things are clicking our favor. D-Wade is playing great. Um, you know, he's carrying the load and everybody, you know, playing to their potential. And Shaq's dominant, you know, uh, presence in the paint as well and being a, a, just a great leader. Um, so now, you know, now we go up, you know, 3-2. Now it's looking real good. Now that, you know, tables are turned now and it's like, okay, now, you know, we got the gun now. We, 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 we're in control of this. And from that point on, it was like, we just have to finish. We have to finish this, you know? And like I said, we kept using that, the fuel of them planning the parade uh, before we even left Dallas. You just heard all that talking. It was like our opportunity to win. And, you know, you just, you know, you, you sit back and you think about it like this. I'm on a bigger stage with an opportunity to win a championship at the highest level. And I think, you know, from, from Gary Payton, Antoine Walker, uh, Jay Will, Alonzo Morning, you know, it was like, this is our opportunity. We have to take, a, you know, take advantage of it. And I think we did so. And you just seen the energy and effort and those last, you say those, those four games uh, completely, like it just sort of changed. And, you know, we just was able to pull it through. And um, like I said, it was a, a, a great team effort, but we had great leaders, leaders and, and Shaq and Pat Riley. And then, you know, we had the young B Wade. He was man. He was awesome, and he he just carried the load, and we was able to contrib- contribute. You know, uh, throughout that season, uh, that series as well. When you were recruited to Boston, what did Garnett and those guys say to you? Uh, actually, it wasn't even uh, those guys for the most part. It was Eddie House. Um, actually, we had the same agent in Mark Butterstein. and so you know, I, I left Miami, and so it was you know, thinking about the future, like where can I go to sort of get stats and, you know, um, build, you know, build my value up uh, for another deal. And so um, I remember it was a Saturday uh, afternoon and I was, you know, just frustrated with the whole process. And uh, I was talking to my agent and I said, you know what, man, I just go to, man, I'm going to go to Jersey. I'm going to go to New Jersey, you know, play with the Nets. And and at the time, you know, they had J-Kid, uh, Richard Jefferson and um, uh, Vince Carter and those guys. And I'm like, man, I go there, you know, you know, with Jake, Jake Kidd, uh, you know, he, he helped players and revived them a little bit. So, you know, yeah. the running style they have, I'm like, okay, I fit in perfect. That's right on my alley, you know, run layups and dunks and, and threes on occasion. And so I, I told him, I said, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to go to Jersey. And so he said, you know what, I'm going to give you some time to think about it and just let me know before I make the phone call and let him know. So an hour go by, two hours go by, Eddie House had already signed uh, with Boston. 
he called me. He said, yo, Pose, he said, if you come, we going to win it. <laughs> and I just started laughing or whatever. He said, no, nah, I'm, I'm serious because, you know, I've been here working out with the guys and everything. He said, yo, no, you the piece right here. Like, you come here, like, we going to win. Like, for I ain't, I, he's like, I, I said, you know, like, we, we going to win. And I'm just like, you know, you hear it and you're just like, okay, he, he recruited me. And, and I never, I knew Eddie from afar. So I'm like, for him to call me, you know what I'm saying? I, I was like, okay, um, that's what's up. And I'm just thinking it's, it's a little gas at the end of the day. Like, okay, he'd say whatever, just recruiting somebody. And so uh, I got off the phone with him and then I just took like another like hour to myself. And, and I just thought about the team, the makeup and, and what just happened and, and being there with KG, you know, Paul and, and Ray. I said, I called my agent back. I said, man, I'm going to go to Boston. And he's like, you sure? And he said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you some more time to think about it. I said, no, nah, I don't need no more time. Like, I was just tired. I said, nah, I'm, I'm going to go to Boston. Are you sure? I'm going to Boston. He said, okay, well, I'm still going to give you some time. So he gave me like 30 minutes. <laughs> and, then, and before that 30 minutes, I said, yo, all right, I'm, I'm still, I'm, I'm going to Boston. And he said he made the phone call to Danny and told him, uh, you know what I'm saying? That I come there. And from there it was, you know, it was every every bit of fun and excitement and just um a great opportunity. And you had a player option, and I remember covering the team, and people were so upset that you left because you were, you know, a really important piece of, of the rotation. But I think it was like 24 over four from New Orleans. Like there was just yeah. I mean, you had to go to New Orleans. Like that must have been the quickest opt-out in in player history. Well, I mean, it was it was the mid level, and then you know, at the time, you know, I understood the, the business side of it. So I'm like, okay, Danny. Like I came here, I figured I I came there for cheap. We yeah. won, so the reward would be a nice, you know, just a contract. I wasn't asking for nothing more than I was supposed to get at the end of the day. And so Danny, he was like, you know what? How how about <laughs> how about you come you come back for another year and do it again? And I'm like, come on, DA. Like, come on, man. Like. We won, so you can't say I didn't come here and we didn't win. And would you actually do another year, you know, saying just on the, on the, on another deal for one year? And so, you know, he understood it. But he said, you know, I'll give you, you know, time to think about it as well. And then as far as other options out there, and then New, or- New Orleans came about and they offered me that, that mid-level. And you know, I had to make my business decision for myself. And I chose to go to, um, you know, to New Orleans. Um, it was just one of those things where, you know, if if I would uh if we wouldn't have won, I'd have thought hard about coming back because I love the team. I love Doc. I love, you know, playing with uh KG, Paul, and Ray. Um, so I wouldn't have, you know, had no issue coming back and trying to and trying to win it. But I came there one and done. Basically we win. So I don't see what the problem the issue issue was as far as like resigning me. But like I said, I do understand the business side as well. So um you can't say that we didn't win while I was there. And there you so, go. <laughs> so that's why I was, I was able just to take that, that deal, my ring and get a new deal and, and just go to new Orleans. So you made the right call on that too. And I'd always wondered, like I'd heard it was cool. I, I love you telling that story about talking to Ainge and just kind of hatching it out. Cause you're like, you really think you're going to be back here on like a one year on short money. Like you just <laughs> did, like that's not <laughs> happening, but he has to try. And then I, I think once you got the full mid-level, like from, from their standpoint, because they were paying so many other guys too, it was just going to be tough for them to do that. When you finish up your career and you end up coach, how tough was it for you 
to be a coach? How bad did you want to still get out there and play the first couple of years? Well, I, I had to, you know, before I uh, went in, went in uh, to coaching, I, I just knew I was done playing. I was done with the preparation of just, you know, the training and everything like that. And, and I was okay with that. And so that was, that was the first step. Um, and so once I came to that conclusion, it was like, okay, now how can I start turning the corners? And like, even towards the tail end of my playing career, I would go to, um, the top 100, uh, coaching, uh, camp, uh, high school player camp, which the NBA ran like their coaching little program through them. So I did that for three years. So I was sort of, you know, just, uh, getting ready and sort of understanding like the whole coaching side of things. And then I was also a part of this, at the time it was the D league. The D league had, um, like open tryouts in New York at like, I want to say like peer, I don't know, 42 or 57, but where uh, anybody could pay, say, like $200 to come there and just have a, a workout in front of the D-League, you know, uh, scouts and, and GMs. And so I was coaching. I was able to coach one of those teams there. And, and coaching that team, like I say, it was guys that probably played or guys that sit at home and say, you know what, I can play this game. I have something to offer and, and just the opportunity. And so they paid their money to come there and they got a jersey. And the experience and the opportunity to possibly play in their home uh, hometown uh, D League or wherever you know uh, be put in that draft, and so uh, it was a great experience there. And then uh, I would just do little uh, coaching experiences like that. And uh, David Griffin, he he called me and said, you know, I heard you wanted you know to to get into coaching, and uh, he was the GM of the Canton Charge at the time, and. Never met Dave, uh, Dave, uh, before then, but it was, it's a funny story with that. Um, and so he called me, asked me if I was still interested, if it was something that I want to do. And I told him, yeah. And, uh, he said, cool, you know, you could be an assistant coach on a Kenton charge, uh, team down here, uh, in a D league. So I accepted it. Um, but with that, he offered, um, the, the first year, uh, he offered, and I just had my youngest son at the time. And so I said, Griff, like, you know, I, I want to come, but I just have my son. I just can't up and leave right now. And so I told him, I said, you know, if this opportunity presents itself next summer, I'm telling you right now. Yes. And so, you know, people are like, okay, you know, I'll check back with you and see what's going on or whatever. So a year later, opportunity presented itself and he called back and I was like, man, thank you. But nothing changed. I'm saying, yes. When do I need to be there? And I left, you know, I left the Canton. And like I said, being from Cleveland, you know, Canton is only like 45 minutes away. So it was an opportunity for me to come back home, uh, see family, but also start, you know, really the my coaching career there. Um, so I'm there in Canton and, and um, Griff, he's, he's like, you know, I met you a long time ago. Like, you, you're not going to even believe this. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm listening. And so he said, back in, you know, uh, doing the pre-draft stuff when you came out uh, in Phoenix, I was, I was like your host, your driver guy that, that got you to everything that you need to go to. And, you know, we had great conversations, you know, to and from like the arena or wherever we needed to go. He said, I, I liked you as a college player, but I just even loved you more in just that conversation. And at the time, I think he was like an intern somewhere or he was doing something. And he was just like, you know, you, you just never know who you meet. But I just took an extra liking to you uh, then. And I just just remember those moments. 
And he said, uh, you probably won't even remember, and, which I didn't, but it made sense. And some things that he said, I could remember, um, like those rides and stuff like that. And I was like, man, wow, it just goes to show you just never know, you know, over the course of, you know, time, you know, people, you know, you leave an impression on people that it comes back and it could be helpful for you in the long run. And for him to, to make the uh, events, investment as far as uh, his positioning to be able to be a GM of the D-League team at the time and come back full circle to, you know, bring me in uh, to start my coaching on the D-League level. Like, it was, it was like, wow. And it's like, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, Griff is is legendary, apparently, after the letter being down 3-1. You're on that staff. Uh, the emotional swing, because you get blown out in those first couple games, and then to come back against this all-time great team, it's one of the best stories in the history of the game. It just is. And, and you had a sideline seat for it, being part of that staff. I just wonder kind of what that was like as that, as that series turned on that moment. Uh, for us, the grind was real. And for us, it was, it was a gut check for, you know, LeBron James, Kyrie, you know, and Kevin Love, and also, you know, T. Lou. Um, but in that same breath, you know, we had great leadership with LeBron James and how he kept, you know, the troops gathered and rallied and hungry and, uh, you know, just thinking about one game at a time. And then T. Lou as well, you know, um, he did a great job of just, keeping everybody calm and and he he preached the same thing all we need to do is just win one game and it's one game at a time and that's how we have to to approach it and now you get to to game seven where nobody thought we was gonna go to you know get to game seven now anything can happen and just with that you see LeBron you know Kyrie and and Caleb just step up you know um it was a it was just a great feeling to win that championship and the fact that we did it that way I think just made it more sweeter, you know, knowing, you know, it, ha- it hadn't been done that way, you know what I'm saying? So for us to put our mark on the championship that way and be the first championship for Cleveland, you know, it, it was a great feeling across the board. James, I really appreciate it. Again, you can check him out, the Pose cast, basketballnews.com, James Posey. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. This episode is brought to you by Viore. It's time to ditch your old workout fit. Seriously, just let them go and try Viore clothing instead. Their active wear is unbelievable. Sometimes I wear it and I go, do I look too good? (laughs) I don't want to be at this peak level of awesomeness in their joggers every single day. This is going to be hard to maintain, but that's what the joggers do for you. Whether you're sort of business cash, whether you're just around the house, whether you're working out, whether you're getting on a plane and you're going to be in your seat for a long time, the joggers just give you a hug for the entire flight. It's soft. It's comfortable. You're never going to want to take them off. Incredible versatility. You can wear it while taking part in different kinds of exercises, running, training, swimming, yoga, and more. Viore yoga class. That just makes sense. The Sunday jogger is the number one go-to. And of course, the core short out and out. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Ryan, R-Y-E-N. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Ryan. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am 
liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life advice, rr at gmail.com. Let's get to it. Okay, Ryan, my name's uh, Marshall. I guess we get a real name here. We get a real name, guy. 63215, all right. Uh, no offense to anyone underneath those numbers. Question, I just rented an apartment that is two to three times bigger than what is considered standard where I live. I'm in Paris, but it's like any other big city, not that important. Ah, it feels fairly important. It feels fairly important that you just get a huge apartment in Paris. Um, our guy is age 34. I've found a way to make a good living in tech while everyone else I know hasn't gotten there yet. I just moved in and have a great place with a pool table and a lot of space to hang. However, I'm hesitant to invite my friends over because I'm afraid they'll think that it's over the top. How can I enjoy the place I rented specifically in order to host people while a lot of people who may come over think it's over the top? Okay. Um, I'm so happy that we have so many listeners doing well. Of all the things to worry about in life, this is not one of them. Okay. You're the one that rented the big place. You're the one that rented the place with the pool table and a ton of, so unless you're pulling a Rosillo the rest of your life, like why did you move into a place? And then as soon as you move in, have anxiety, apprehension about sharing the place as you point out how great of a hang it is. So again, of all the things we can add up, like, what are you worried about that now people are going to think you're doing better than they, than they thought. There's also a really good chance that people already knew you were doing well. Um, because everybody kind of talks about everybody else the entire time. So unless this is some life altering move here where, you know, you're not really in tech and you're a spy or you're an international hacker just going after banks, you know, I don't know, Interpol, um, who cares? Who cares if the people in another city realize you you're doing better than they thought you were doing? I, I just, this is a weird hang up that. I don't understand. And I know that I could be wrong about this. I know that others just say, oh, you know, they don't like to, it's not being flashy. It, it's where you live. You live in a nice place and you clearly want people to hang out with you. So just invite them over. Problem solved. Again, like, like I said, if we think of all the things that we can kind of have hangups about, and it'd be great if we all had a clean slate, we never had hangups about anything and people that tell you they do, they're probably lying about it, but I'm sure there's a few people that just keep it moving, right? Keep it moving. Nothing bothers them. Nothing bothers them. The ranking of all those things that can bother us, this is so low that it shouldn't even be like this is it's not even others receiving votes. Kyle. I was just gonna say you don't want to miss out on the opportunity to be a dream friend. You're like 90% of the way there. Oh, uh, wait, we forgot about Kyle's motivation on everything. <laughs> Kyle's like, wait, yeah, like you have to have people over because I'd be one of those guys, not with the great apartment, but being at your place all the time. I don't I don't get it. Like you wanted a big, like, all right get a small place that isn't as nice and then have people over and they think you aren't doing well. Problem solved. Like that doesn't seem like a solution. So there you go. Although people are weird about it. Some people can be really weird. They can lie about having second homes, beach houses, third homes. I, you know, I remember being at ESPN and there's a guy that there's a guy making like a few million a year. And he asked me if I like my Land Rover. And I was like, yeah, I love it. It's the best car I've ever driven. And he was like, yeah, I could never do it. And I was like, why? He's like, I don't know, pulling in in the parking lot with a Land Rover. Like, you've been on fucking TV for a long time. Everyone in talent knows how much you make. Like, you coming into the parking lot with a nice car is not going to be like, oh, my God. He made, what? Wait, do you know what that he was driving? Guy? 
What was he driving? I'm not going to give it away. I don't want to sell out uh, the other guy because he's actually a really nice person. It's a really nice, and it's not Van Pelt. Van Pelt had Lambo. Was it a really nice car? Was he driving like a? It was a know, decent like a- enough car, but it was still a little surprising. And again, you know, like, look, some people are different. I, the first friend of our friend group who made a lot of money, he was making money way before anybody else was making money. I came in last, by the way. Uh, he was like, I just am not a car guy. He's like, I just think it's stupid to have a car payment over a certain amount of money every time. And everybody's different. So, you know, for people that somehow don't like whenever finances are discussed in the pod, we're never going to shy away from this. We're going to talk about this like adults. Um, he was, it wasn't that he wasn't even a car guy. It was that he was kind of like, I'd love to get one of those, but I wouldn't want people talking. And you're like, you wouldn't want people. People are already talking, bro. People are already talking. You just resigned like, like six months ago. It came up. A bunch of us were having drinks the other night and your contract actually came up. And people know how much you make. We all know how, we all pretty much ballpark know how much everybody else makes on air. So why do you care? Now, in this case, it's a little different because you're not on air somewhere in a small group, a fraternity of people where agents, you know, the, the part where, you know, there's, there's all sorts of agent carryover where some people are rep by the same people. So we all figure it out and we want to be armed with it for the next negotiation. This is a completely different conversation, but you understand the point in your case, share your nice apartment. You're looking at this only as a negative when really the positive could be maybe people start looking at you a little different. Right? You know what I'm saying here? Like, do you see Marshall? Do you know he's 6'3 and 215 and has a pool table and plenty of space? You know, you never know. This could be a huge, this could, you're looking at this as a negative, it's a positive. So there you go. Problem solved. Yeah. And if you're honestly, if your friends are upset that you're inviting them over to your sweet like pad in Paris to like hang out and play pool. Like that's, that's not your problem, dude. That's on them. So don't worry about it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Another living situation one. This one is uh, one of my favorites. Great pick, Kyle. Uh, here we go. Guys living in Indianapolis, five, nine, but that's, that's great. 25 years old. Um, he doesn't know how much he weighs, but he says he looks good naked and has abs. <laughs> oh, I don't even know. Maybe you should be running life advice. So here's the issue. This is such a good one, but it's not. It's a bad one. I moved in with my good college friend at the end of November. He recently bought his first home and he was renting a room out for me. So he, his friend bought the house. Okay. This is pretty self-explanatory. I think the first time I read it through, I didn't realize this. So sorry. So Rick, all right, we'll just use Rick's name. Too late. Rick has been exposed. Rick buys a house. Our emailer here uh, decides to move in rents a room from him. It's very social. Rick is very social. feel like we were at college again. Again, these guys are 25. About a month in, his hometown friend, another guy, moves in with us. I was totally on board. New friends. Rents cut a little bit. And good vibes. Yay. That's a real yay in here. Uh, he's a nice guy, but there's an issue. He starts dating this girl about a month into us living together who has a surplus of red flags. He had known this girl previously growing up, but had not seen her in eight years when they started dating. On top of that, she has a one-year-old baby. You probably know where this is going. Her and the baby start staying over every night. Wakes me up crying. Um, the friend did not ask Rick and I how we felt about this. He just sort of showed up with her and the kid. And we were forced to deal with it. She's a nice girl, a bit of a troubled family. And at one point a week ago, her father was threatening to come into our house to see if it is suitable for a child. <laughs> All caps here. Of course it is not. We are 25-year-old men still getting after it! Exclamation point. Um, since the guy had started dating the girl, his whole vibe has changed. No shit. He's dating somebody who has a kid. 
Uh, he does not talk to us. He never does anything to help out around the house. Nothing. The one time we asked him to do the dishes, he threw a hissy fit um, and kept saying none of those dishes are his. <laughs> this is the moment. I got to be honest with you. It sounds like he doesn't do anything. I'm deferring to you. I'm deferring to trust here and believing you here. But if you did ask a guy who doesn't do anything to do a bunch of dishes that weren't his and he already doesn't do anything, that wasn't the most tactful way to be like, hey, do you mind pitching in and doing the dishes that we just made dirty? Side note for future uh, controversy. At this moment, I started to dislike the guy uh, saying none of those dishes are mine is the most selfish, immature mindset. And I hate being around people like this. I share a bathroom with this guy. He uh, leaves me clogged toilets all the time and I <laughs> clean up his messes all the time, but you never hear a peep from me. This is just called being a good roommate. I do not want to move out because it's a nice, spacious house for my dog and not to mention my rent is cheap. Rick and I have tried talking to him, but it literally goes in one ear and out the other. If it were me and Rick's shoes, I would have just kicked him out, but Rick is too nice, Ryan. Are Rick and I being too harsh? What should I do? I'm tired of waking up to a crying baby. It's extremely uncomfortable. I never thought that I would ever have a roommate I've disliked, and I've uh, lived with some characters in my life already. What do we do? All right. Um, the guy with the girlfriend with the kid is the selfish one here. Uh, the fact they're even asking, what should we do? You guys got to sit him down. You can't be half-assed about it and go, we want you out. There's no negotiation here. If he's this horrible of a roommate, as you pointed out, and then moves a kid into it, and the house, as you admit, isn't even suitable. You're 25. You shouldn't be living with a one-year-old baby that isn't yours, okay? There's arguments to be said you shouldn't be living with if it is yours, but you don't understand. <laughs> what my point here is, like, this is not what you wanted to do. Um, I would move out, all right? I would move out. It's cool there's a yard for a dog. It's not the only house in Indianapolis that probably has a yard for a dog. It's nice that the rent is a little cheaper, but I would pay double to not have a one-year-old around when I was 25 years old, okay? And maybe feasibly, like, you need you need to give him the harshest, like, tell Rick, hey, I'm out of here if this guy's not gone, all right? Because he's, he's the wrong one here. You know, it's funny that you said this, and it might be your Midwestern sensibilities where you were like, cool, a new roommate, awesome friends. I immediately think of it as, okay, another guy in the mix I don't know red flags all over the place. The more people who start inviting to live with you, the more chances there could be a problem. The other problem is, is it could be your tone and how you uh, ask him about stuff. But now I think it's over because, you know, if the only version is, hey, I live here with you and your girlfriend and the one-year-old baby, or I don't, you know, it doesn't sound like there's any compromise. But people can be really selfish as roommates. Uh, I constantly remind all of us how, how selfish everyone can be. But there's also something to being roommates with guys when somebody else tells you to do something. And it could be the first time that other time the roommate has ever been told to do something by someone that isn't like a family member. So that can always be a little weird. I remember uh, my senior year, I had a roommate. Let's call him Mac. Uh, great guy. Fun came back from Australia, was known as Outback Mac for a few months. People wondered where his head was at. He shaved up everything and he was, he was good to go. A good package again, but it was, it was a weird couple months. And I was not the greatest roommate. I'll admit. Um, I don't know that I was selfish. It was just that I had a lot going on and very, very little money most of the time. And so I don't know that I was on top of the toiletry routine. And now thinking back, I don't know why six of us shared toiletries. Like, just get your own little toiletry kit. Not a big deal. But for whatever reason, there'd be like one bar of soap in the shower. Yes, I know that's gross. And I know that, you know, there was just one bottle of shampoo. So I think whatever the rotation of like who was on the toiletries, I'm pretty sure I never brought anything to the table. And I should have, but I just didn't think of it. All right. I wouldn't be going, hey, you know what? It'd be nice. Pick up some toiletries for the guy. Just not the way I was wired at 21. All right. It took a while. 
And as I was heading out, I think to grab groceries, Mac goes to me in a really, really adult tone because as much fun as Mac was, he loved being a grown up in moments. And he wasn't always, but he just loved kind of being a grown up in certain moments. He was like, hey, Rosillo. I go, yeah, yeah. He goes, uh, grab some Pantene. Grab some Pantene when you're at the grocery store. And that was the delivery. And it was kind of like a frustration. They probably talked about me like, hey, Rosillo hasn't bought any toiletries in like five months. I go, what do you mean? I was like, I think we got per plus upstairs. Like, I think we're good. Why do I need to bottle, buy a bottle of Pantene? And I just didn't like that he was telling me to do it because he was, the, the, the sentiment was right. I didn't like the delivery. So I was like, fuck this. So he goes, look, uh, he goes, Pantene's a superior product. That was the follow-up. So now I'm like really pissed. I'm like, oh, really? What are you, a dermatologist? This superior product? Like you want me to buy? And then another guy chimed in, was like, hey, Rosillo, you haven't bought anything. Like we've been living here since August and it's February. You've never bought any toiletries. I go, okay, fine. And the thing was, all of them were right. I didn't like it. But you know what I don't have? A one-year-old baby, okay? I never said, hey, by the way, I'm going to move in with my girlfriend and a baby. So it is not soft delivery. It is direct delivery. Hey, this is not what we signed up for. And if the new guy or the guy that owns the house, Rick, they don't agree with you, you move out. Because that's the only answer here. You don't want to be living with a kid that's not yours. True facts. Okay, there you go. That's a podcast. Um, back on Sunday nights, playoff wrap-up, Bill Simmons and I. And then uh, we'll see you next Tuesday. Please subscribe, rate, review, and spread the word on this successful podcast. I appreciate everyone listening.